design. Good morning. Uh, you may notice the, the good-looking young man that's usually up here is not here today. Um, he has a lot of doctoral work that he's been working on, uh, so we're going to respect him and let him finish his studies. Yep, Dr. Dr. Carter. <laughs> and so what a better way to serve Britain, uh, our pastor, in a way to let him take a weekend off. And so my name is Jonathan Adukovich. If you are joining with us from another church, from home, or if this is your first time with us, we welcome you. Um, today, we're going to be in Matthew 24, verses 36 through 51. And so many of y'all have not heard me preach or teach in front of you. I'm very interactive. And so I will ask you either to repeat some things or I will emphasize and say things a lot like your typical Southern Baptist pastor. And so I will, so once you get to Matthew 24, whenever I'm up here, I will say, if you're there, say word. And you guys will say, good, okay. So if you're at Matthew 24, say word. Great. Matthew 24, verse 36 to 51. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be so the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant who his master finds him doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will send him over all his possessions to himself. But if the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants, eats and drinks with drunkards, so the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect and an hour he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrite in the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, first and foremost, we thank you for our salvation. That we don't, we don't deserve it, uh, we can't earn it, and we thank you for your son's life, death, and resurrection, that we have the ability to have eternal life with you through Jesus. And I pray this morning as we enter Advent, enter a season of waiting, enter a season of celebration, that we can fix our eyes on the hope that the birth of Christ was meaningful, that the birth of Christ, that the life of Christ gave us life, that the death of Christ gave us life. I pray that we remember that. I pray that we put our mind on his word and his goodness. In your son's name we pray. And the Lord's people said, amen. And so you may not know this church family, uh, but today is the first Sunday of the season of Advent. Uh, Steve wasn't up here wearing a purple robe. Our worship team didn't have a purple robe. We didn't have big wreaths or candles everywhere. Um, and so if you didn't grow up in church, it's okay. I'm glad you're with us. Uh, we're not really going to dive into the specifics of Advent, more of what the season entails. Um, Advent is often described as a time of expectancy, celebration, and waiting for the birth of Christ leading up to Christmas. This is for sure part of the story, but to say that this is all Advent is, is to undermine the importance of the season. As believers of Christ, we need to know not only what Advent is, but what the season of Advent means for us today and why we should celebrate the season of Advent, but why it's also a season of waiting. The passage we just read into 
pop into the last week of Jesus' life. This is not your typical Isaiah 9, 6, your typical Jeremiah 23, 4 through 5, which is your typical Advent uh, passage. Uh, but this passage, this, these two paragraphs really entail what we want as a posture, as a church, as a body of believers, as a city within a city. And so if you're unfamiliar with the text and the timing of this passage, these two passages are some of the last things Jesus will teach his disciples on earth. The 12, his closest followers and friends, are sitting on the Mount of Olives, the same place where Jesus will send into heaven and the Holy Spirit will come down. To catch you up on the story, Jesus is responding to a question that was asked at the beginning of chapter in 24, verse 3. And it should be on the screen, um, so you don't have to flip all the way over there. I'm going to read that verse, uh, 24, verse 3. It says, w- this is the disciples talking to Jesus. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The disciples who have physically seen and followed Jesus, this entire earthly ministry are asking the question we all go to our pastors, we all go to our social media page, we all go to our grandmothers about. When is Jesus coming back and how will we know? The disciples do not have to run to YouTube. They don't have to run to their local news network or the 700 Club or whatever you get your rapture information from. They have Jesus right there. Um, But rather than giving a specific date, time, or hour, as they would like to know, and we ourselves, which he doesn't know anyways, uh, he first answers his question and then leaves them with two instructions about their posture of waiting for his return. And so if you look with me at 36, um, 36 says, concerning that day to an hour, so the time that he will return, what does Jesus say? Nobody knows. And if you jump to 42, he says, therefore, stay awake you do not know what day our Lord is coming. And if you jump to 44, it says, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. These two commands to stay awake and be ready is what Jesus wants the 12 to focus on rather than knowing the exact time, date, and hour of his coming. Jesus wants our lives to reflect an active and faithful waiting more than anything else. In these first eight verses, he is commanding the 12 and us today that our heart posture for our life needs to be a posture of staying awake and staying ready for him. We are to posture our entire lives waiting for the return of Jesus to bring us to glory. And so does your life, does it reflect worshiping Jesus or knowing and learning more about Jesus? You can worship Jesus and know more about him, but you can also know more about Jesus and not worship him. And as we look into the text, even though it does not specifically say this, as I'm reading in between the white spaces, between the lines, the disciples want to exactly know when Jesus is coming back so they can be ready. Oh, I can have this last-minute adjustment. I can have this last-minute turnaround. I can fix myself. I can get myself right this last minute. Most of us ponder and ask this question because we ourselves are not ready or waiting for Jesus' return. We need to stop worrying and stop worshiping and start waiting. And so my first point, if you're taking notes, to follow us along in the scripture, our first point, I have three, like your typical Baptist pastor, it's going to be why we should wait. And so, Luke's question, Jesus, when are you coming back and how will we know in verse 3 of chapter 24? And our head really translates to, okay, I need to get my act together or else. We as believers need to realize these two things. First, Jesus is coming back. Amen. That is something to rejoice over. That is something to celebrate. That is something to live for. That our God lived, died, resurrected, and is coming back to judge the living and the dead. That is a truth that we have to center our lives around. And so if you look at Jesus' response one more time in 37 and 38, he is not only telling them that he will come back, 
But he, in this response, he is comforting and reaffirming the disciples that although his earthly or his physical life is about to come in him, his eternal kingdom will come like a thief in the night, just like in the days of Noah. And before I move on, this is important for the story to address. The disciples who didn't have the scientific discovery that we have today, they didn't have access to university studies, they didn't have access to the 700 Club, to Fox News, to CBS, to CNN. But what they did have access to was Jesus' teaching. What they did have access to was Jesus' word, just like we have access to today. The disciples would have heard this reference to Noah, and he immediately like, oh, snap. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the only way that we are saved through this, this eternal flood, this eternal damnation, is through life in Christ, is through Jesus. And so Jesus, in these verses, is telling his disciples that, yes, I am coming back to make new and redeem all things, that I am coming back to bring my people and followers into heaven, that I am coming back to be the final judgment, and I'm coming back to bring you from your temporary reciting into eternal glory. I am coming back to make all things new, to rid of all suffering, to rid of all mourning, to rid of all pain, and bring you and dwell with you in heaven. He is disclosing at this time what would be considered monumental news. Imagine being a, a Jew in, during this time, and you've been taught all your life to wait for the Messiah. You've been reading the scrolls of Isaiah, the scrolls of Jeremiah. You've been reading about all the prophets of Daniel hinting about the coming of, Je coming of the Messiah. And Jesus is telling him, I am the Messiah. He is saying that that flood that wiped up all of humanity, that while people were still eating and giving in marriage and drinking and having fun and living, that the security and safety the family of Noah had, that, our, that we have as a body of Christ. We had that same life. We had that same guarantee of salvation through Christ Jesus. He is the Messiah living in the flesh, and he is the same Messiah that will come back and end all suffering, end all death, end all pain, end all anguish and nasty things that have resulted from human sinful nature. It will be wiped away, and we will have a greater home. Tears will be no more. Suffering will be no more. And this alone should be worthy of our worship and worthy of our wait. But just as he promises and affirms his return, we as followers do not live like he's coming back. We live our lives in this life here on earth as if this is all there is. We live our lives like the master in the house who is unaware of the coming of the kingdom of heaven. We live our lives selfishly and full of darkness like in the days of Noah. We live a life comfortably to better serve our needs and our desires rather than living in a posture that reflects Christ's return. We think that waiting for Christ's return as he instructs us to is not worthy of our worship, so it is not worthy of our lives. We abuse his name and his grace to justify his actions. And so I work another job for the city of Denton. Uh, most of the time I sit at a desk with people. It's pretty easy, very simple job. Um, we don't really do a lot, so I usually read a lot. One of my coworkers had asked me, she's been, she's been awesome, she's been curious, the Lord has been working in her life. She asked me questions about the Trinity, she asked me questions about the Bible, the authority, and she's like, oh, I got you. You don't know the answer to this one. If Jesus died for our sins, doesn't that give me freedom to sin? And I was like, well, what do you think? Because pastors, you know, we always answer a question with a question. <laughs> and so I asked her, what do you think? And she says, well, if Jesus is who he says he is and he died for our sins, then I can be able to live my life this way. And so what this is really called, there's a fancy word, a fancy word that scholars and theologians say. It's called antinomianism. Really, it just means abusing grace. And so my coworker, I won't say her name, she was so overwhelmed with the fact that she wanted to better serve her life, her needs, her desires, rather than those of Jesus. And I said, okay, I give her this example. 
you have two just different couples, two faithful wives, great wives. One is in an abusive and neglectful relationship. One is a loving and happy relationship. Both wives are faithful. One wife is faithful because she is scared out of fear. She doesn't want to get hurt. She doesn't want to get left. She doesn't want to, she's out of fear for her life. The other wife is obedient. She's loving. She does everything because she is loved. And just like this, as believers of Christ, we are called to live because of how we are loved. Because of how Jesus, what Jesus did for us is important and it should dictate our lives. And so, but we do not do that as believers. I'm forgiven so I can sin here. I can be lazy. I can live comfortably because this is what Jesus came. Jesus did not just die Jesus did not just die for your sins. He died because of your sins. But thank God he did not save us. He was resurrected on the third day and ascended into heaven and will be coming back to judge the living and the dead. This news, the gospel, and the nature of truth of who Jesus is is why we should worship him and why we should wait. And so this question is often asked a lot. If you knew Jesus was coming back next Sunday, what would this week entail for you? Church. Amen? Would you pray more? Would you gather more? Would you read your word more? (laughs) Would you share your faith with your family and friends more? (laughs) No, it's good. I I, I like it. Thank you, John. (laughs) Would you obey God's command more? What would you do differently? I was convicted of this. I thought I would share my faith with my family and friends who do not know Jesus. And that convicted me. Why am I not doing that already? Why does my life not reflect the posture of this is the way? He is the truth. He is the life. Why would I not do this differently? And so if you said anything, any yes to this, or you're, and I would rest more, or I would be grateful because I'm going to heaven, or man, I would be content because I'm excited. Jesus is coming back. I'm glad that you have realized and humbled yourself down into this position. But also I want to invite you to live your life as if Jesus is coming back. Because guess, because guess what? He is coming back. And so our God is alive. Our God is living, and he's coming to redeem all things for his glory. And that simple truth is why we should wait on him. Point number two, if you're taking notes and follow, follow me along scripture, the urgency of waiting. And so I'm going to ask a question that's going to encompass the rest of our time together. Um, and hopefully this question can infiltrate your marriage, your home groups, your lunches today. Uh, Cowboys aren't playing, so you have no excuse not to talk about this question. But are you or we actively waiting for Christ's return? Or are you similar to the foolish servants, actively seeking the comfort and desires of the world? And so let me get back to Matthew right here. Look at me in Matthew 45 to 51. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant who his master will find him when, he's, when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with his drunkards, the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, an hour he does not know, and will cut him into pieces and put him in with the hypocrites in the place where there will be gnashing of teeth. And so in this passage, we have two distinct servants that are under the conduct of their master's control. The faithful and wise servant and the wicked servant. The faithful servant conducts his work 
around the master's instructions so, uh, and persona so much that even when the master isn't there, he's faithful. On the other hand, the wicked servant says in his heart, my master is not coming home anytime soon. He is not worth my obedience, so therefore I can act, do, say, believe, whatever I want. Doesn't this sound familiar? Doesn't this sound like a lot of what our world is trying to teach influence on our lives? It's your truth. It's your life. It's your decision. We are actually going to first look at the ways of the wicked servant prior to the faithful and wise servant specifically to the why behind the wicked servant and the consequences of the wicked servant. If you look at me at 48, verse 48, Matthew 24, but if the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. So obviously we see the wicked servant, my master is he's not back. I immediately thought of not only how I've been impatient, how I've been waiting, but through my entire life, whether it's for my parents, whether it's for my schooling, whether it's for Jesus, the story that kept coming into my head was when we first moved into our house, my brothers, I have three brothers. God bless my mom. Um, we were playing this game called hallway soccer. And so you could probably imagine where this is going. My older brother's five years older than me. Uh, my younger brother's two years older than me. So we're not too far. My cousin lives with me. And so if you're an athlete and you grew up in a house, there's always one big rule. No balls in the house. Don't throw the ball. Don't kick the ball. Don't do anything. Parents aren't home. Bad little kids. Don't know how to act. Older brother's like, man, let's play hallway soccer. I'm like, okay, fine, let's play. We're playing. We're having the time of our lives, having fun, screaming, yelling, crying at each other, competing, throwing each other on the walls. And probably about 30 minutes go by, nothing happens. We're good. We're fine. My brother, my older brother, he goes up to my little brother and kind of hip checks him into the wall. Justin is, my, my little brother is probably like five or six at the age. Very small, very tender, um, and gets frustrated. Nothing breaks, nothing hurts, he gets mad. And so he has the ball, and Justin, in the four-foot hallway by two-foot width that we have, kicks the ball as hard as he can at Jordan. Jordan gets out the way, goes straight into the wall. Oof. I don't know what happened. We turn around. The ball is stuck in the wall. <laughs> and now we're like, shoot, we're done. When mom and dad get home, we're going to get beat. We're trying to come up with excuses. We're trying to blame it on somebody. Man, the neighbor came in and did it. Man, there's, I don't know what happened. Something had happened. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. We were so distracted by the childish things that we partake in that we would rather partake in those things than be obedient to what our parents had said. Beloved, this is the most dangerous lie that our world and our enemy has placed on us today. You can focus on that God stuff later. Or you really believe that? You're missing so out on so much fun, on so much life by being a Christian. Our world has blinded many people to the fact there is no need to wait on Jesus. The waiting in itself is as bad. But why would you wait on Jesus' turn when you can have fun and live your own life, live your own truth, live your own way? This is a dangerous trap that has ensnared many people from following Jesus. The wicked servant believed that he would have enough time before his master returned. My brothers and I believed we'd have enough time before my parents would return that we can mess around and have fun. Many people and families believe that they can put this Jesus off, this Jesus off later, they can put this Christian off later, they can take time. They believe that Jesus is not worth their, their worship in their lives. 
I'm here to tell you today that the ways of the wicked servant are becoming far too mainstream. And we as a body of believers need to combat and fight this lie. We as believers know this is not to be true. But we know that truth of peace and security and rejoicing and strength is found only in Christ Jesus. Waiting on Jesus and posturing your life around him is not a waste of your life and is not a waste of your time. In a world and culture that has placed a negative connotation and perspective on waiting, we need to preach, teach, and educate our families and friends that waiting on Christ is not only the best way to live, beloved, but it's the only way to live. Because of his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus is who he says he is. He is the only way, he is the only truth, and he's the only life, and because of this, he is worth our lives. We often hear waiting and automatically think something is wrong. You're at Jason's Deli after lunch. Your order takes 10 extra minutes. Oh, what's wrong? You're going to his kitchen. It just can't be that hard. Your pitcher gives up four runs in the first innings of game seven against the Texas Rangers. Get him out of there. He's got to go. You don't want to make dinner. I, I love DoorDash. You don't want to make dinner. Oh, let me, let me, not McDonald's, not Chili's, disgusting, not Taco Bell. Let me get something right. Let me get something nice. We live in a world that preaches a Burger King gospel. BK, you have it your way. Your world, you have it your way. That you can have it whenever you want, wherever you want, and however you want. The wicked servant does not follow the business that his master had left him. He fought and mistreated his fellow servants and sought the desires of the world rather than the desires of his master. And beloved, living for the desires of the world, the approval of the world, not in a posture that represents your faith in Jesus, leads to what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Beloved, this is not what a follower of Jesus looks like or entails. Throughout the story of Scripture, our God has used waiting to reveal his nature, his characteristics, his power, his authority, and his sovereignty over all of our lives. Slavery for 400 years in Exodus, only to be delivered in 10 days, then to wait 40 more years in the desert, only to get to the promised land, march around the promised land for seven days, then to enter the promised land, then to lose that, lose what was promised to us, the surrounding nations and war and indifference, just to be exiled for 70 years by the Babylonians, then for King Cyrus to overthrow the Babylonians and give, us, give our land back to God's people which only led to more indifference. Then for 400 years, no prophet, no verbal voice of God or revelation until the promise and birth of King Jesus. And overarching all of this, the promise of Genesis 3, after the, after the, fall, after the fall of Adam and Eve, that the offspring of Adam and Eve would step on and crush the serpent's heel once and for all, all the way to Revelation 21.3. For God's people and us today, it often felt like God had abandoned them, forsaken them, or left them. But just as we remember, just as we pray, just as we sing, just as we teach, even when you don't see it, beloved, our Lord is working. We can see the grand story of Scripture unfolding by reading from verse to verse, chapter to chapter, and book to book. We flip through Scripture and read dates and do not realize how long 400 years is, 40 years is, 70 years is. We do not realize how much waiting has been done in the history of God's people. And we do not realize how God has used our waiting to bring glory and honor to himself. The wicked servant, the unfaithful servant, the unbelieving servant will spend eternity in a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The servant that does not know Jesus 
that his life, death, and resurrection is not worthy of their life will be eternally separate from the free gift of eternal life with God. These are the consequences of unbelief. And this is why we need to be urgent in our waiting, to be urgent in our sharing. We need to be urgent in our lives. We need to get the connotation that waiting is negative, that waiting is passive, that waiting is bad. Waiting is active for God's people. For our lives today, we need to live a life that represents, represents active waiting. Point number three, how we should wait. If you look at me with verse 46. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find will find so doing when he comes. The faithful and wise servant is blessed. Why? Because his master will find him doing his work when he comes. This servant in the parable is not physically in the presence of his master. They're not looking at each other in the eye. But the servant knows that his master will return. And when he does return, he will be faithful to what his master has entrusted to him and placed before him. He is doing what he's supposed to do. He is living faithfully and waiting faithfully. So therefore, he is a faithful and wise servant. Now, do not hear me say this, even as we talked about last week, our dead works, both individually and corporately, that you can wait your way into God's heart, that you can earn your way into God's heart, that you can buy your way into God's heart. This is known as a works-based faith. This cannot be further from the truth, as we are saved by grace through faith from Christ's works on the cross. Just as Brayden mentioned last week, our dead works, individually and corporately, do not save us. However, because of Christ's work on the cross, and the acceptance of him, the acceptance of his life, of his death, of his resurrection, our lives must look different. You cannot say you're a Christian and continue to, in the old, continue to live in the flesh, in the ways of old. But you must receive Christ and be transformed by the renewal of your mind and conviction from the Holy Spirit. Just as my coworker had asked the question about abusing grace, you cannot abide and live faithfully and not be a new creation, a new branch, a new husband, a new wife, a new father. Our lives must stem from Christ. You do not act or do a certain thing to earn Christ, but our lives are represented because of what Christ has done for us. We have faith in Christ, so that our actions show and live. Our actions prove our faith in Christ. And so, if you look with me at 47, truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. With uh, this possession that is mentioned for the faithful servant, is not given because the servant worked harder or he did more or he was on time better or he read his Bible more or he was in more home groups or he started a home group or he went overseas. He was given the possession because he did what was expected from his master. The servant was faithful to the master. He realized his master's authority outweighs his own comfort, his, his own comfort, his own desires, his own authority. Christ Jesus commands us to follow him to carry our cross every day, everywhere we go, and to place our trust and our lives in him. This is a little side note. One thing to point out in 46, if you look at there with me, it says, blessed is the servant who is master of fine doing so when he comes. Prior to these, when the word servant is mentioned, it is always faithful and wicked. But Jesus does not say that in these verses. Instead, he just uses servant. Many of your versions may say slave. Uh, this shows that the servant himself is not and cannot be faithful inherently, just as we cannot save ourselves, just as we are not faithful human beings inherently, but, but faithful and wise because of who his master is. And blessed is he or she who acknowledges that. The servant acknowledges that my master is worth my weight, 
more than my life, more than the distractions of the world. The servant acknowledges that I, me, you, cannot live faithfully without knowing Christ Jesus. To this servant, the authority of the master outweighs the authority of their own selfish desires. The servant becomes faithful and wise because of who he or she worships and how who or he or she postures themselves around it. And how faithful of a God who is faithful to his servants. If you ever worked really hard at a job, you're a really good parent, and your, and your kids just neglect what you've done with them. Your, your boss has neglected what you've done. You've put in the years, you've put in the time just for you to not get that promotion. Our God is faithful. He is faithful to his servants. And that is something to rejoice over. And so, even as we look at our world today, church family, there are people in our lives who are looking for all the right things in all the wrong places. They are looking for purpose. They're looking for a sense of belonging, a sense of identity, their truth. They're looking for salvation in everything that is empty, just as we talked about a couple weeks ago in Ecclesiastes. They're looking for their, themselves in their job, in their abilities, in their car, in their house, in all the wrong places. We were created for so much more than to work a job. We were created for so much more to, just to make a lot of money. We were created for so much more to have a cool house, have a cool car, have a cool life. We were created to worship God and dwell with him. This, this, the reason we were created is first mentioned in Genesis 1 and 2. God was made on, uh, not God, God made man on what day? The sixth. When did God rest? The seventh. The very first day God had to rest, the very first full day human, humans had, they were dwelling with God. We were created to live and dwell and worship in God. The best way to navigate through the struggles of this life and the hardships of this life and make wise decisions while navigating this life is to be faithful to the teachings and instructions of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What if instead of making decisions and navigating through this life, with the knowledge of the flesh and experience, we made decisions based on the good news of the gospel. What if every decision we made, big or small, we made while subconsciously thinking, how does this affect how I wait on Jesus? How does this affect how I worship Jesus? Am I going to be able to love and serve Jesus more in this place? Am I able to glorify and honor God with this job or in this marriage or in this relationship or with this car? Am I going to be able to gather with God's people on a consistent basis and lean on our brothers and sisters in Christ while doing so? As believers, as followers, as disciples, we need to make decisions right now in regards to Jesus' return and not the conference of desires of right now. Jesus is given this example because he knows there will be a time where he won't be with his people in the flesh. That he won't be there physically to tell us yes or no. He won't be able to tell us to accept that position or the other position. But what he does promise, church, is glory. What he does promise, church, is salvation. What he does promise, church, is security through his life, death, and resurrection. He will return, and we need to center our lives around that. He knows that it will be hard. We will feel like we are forsaken at times, neglected at times, abandoned at times. But beloved, know this, that our God is the Redeemer. He will never forsake you. He will never abandon you. He will never cast you out. He will always welcome you 
open arms. And because of this, we need to actively wait on Christ's return. And so, how do we wait on Christ's return? To actively wait on Christ is to posture your life around what Jesus has taught us to do to draw near to him. That's a lot of words I'll explain in a second. We live in a time where now, more than ever, we need to, we need to abide in Christ. We abide in him by praying, by reading scripture, by gathering, by rejoicing, by feasting, by fasting, by pointing one another to scripture, by comforting one another, by suffering. If anything is promised in scripture, it's suffering. We need to point each other to the beauty of the gospel. We need to point each other to the word. We need to point each other to prayer. We need to point each other to one another. That's what God's people is there for. We may not look alike. We may not be from the same family, the same creed, the same background, but we have all one thing in common, that we've been covered by the blood of Jesus, and that is enough for us. When we pray, we are posturing our hearts, our minds, and even our bodies to cry out to God or to give thanks for God for his providence and his promises. We are making our requests and needs known to him as scripture tells us to. And we are waiting actively for a response. Lord, help me with this situation. I can't, I don't know what to do. I need you. Prayer is the most humble, independent posture we can take as Christians. Prayer is the one place you can truly 100% be yourself. You can make your needs and requests known to God without feeling a, a sense of shame, a sense of embarrassment a sense of condemnation. Our God is listening. He wants us to pray. He wants us to make our requests known to him. When we read scripture, we are reading and waiting for God to reveal himself in the word. We do not and should not just read the word to post it on social media, to, to check off a box in our life. Oh, woke up, read the word, good. No. We read scripture with the intent of learning more about God. We read scripture with the intent of falling in love with God more. We shouldn't read scripture with a mirror. How can I get out of this? What, what does it say about me? We should read scripture with a window. Scripture is more like a window than a mirror. We want to learn more about God. We want to see God more. We want to see God reveal himself in his word. When we gather throughout the week, just as John was talking about what he would do, not just on Sundays, not just on Wednesdays, but every day for the week, we're not only obeying the commands of God, it's in Hebrews 10, 20, 24, but also teaching about the posture of waiting, singing the songs of waiting, working, waiting and working for his return, praying and pointing one another to, to glory and away from pain and suffering. We are breaking bread with one another in hope and reminder that we are all united in Christ. We are suffering with one another. We're mourning with one another. We're lifting each other up. We're crying with one another. All in hope that when glory comes, Christ will renew everything and make everything better. We posture our gatherings around waiting for Christ Jesus. When we suffer together, we're, we're, we're growing our reliance for God. I cannot get through this alone. You cannot be a Christian and walk alone. You cannot navigate the hardships of this life and walk by yourself. I don't need to see, I don't need to go to this life group. I don't need to confess. I don't need to, I don't need to go to church on Sundays to be, I don't need to do this. You need believers in your life to love on you, to push you closer towards Jesus, to walk with you through times of struggles, times of hardships. There are too many believers that are trying to navigate this life alone. You can't do it. 
when we feast and when we fast, specifically when we fast, we're posturing our bodies, our physical bodies, to be reliant and dependent on God. We are waiting for God. Usually throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, when they fast, not really uh, prominent in the New Testament, when they fast, they're waiting for a revelation from God. They're waiting for instructions. They're waiting for something to be told to them or a decision to be made or to show honor and glory to God. They're waiting on God to reveal himself. When we feast, very similar to when we gather, we're rejoicing. We're having fun. Man, Vinny's was so good last Sunday. I love that. Maybe we can go there again this Sunday. That was really good. Uh, we're having fun. We're breaking bread with one another. We're obeying God's command. And so, hear me today, beloved. As a Christian, as a devoted follower of Christ, we must understand that our lives will be filled with waiting on Jesus. His timing is always better than our timing. His will is always better than our will. His promises, his, his gift, his security is always better than ours. And that is worth our waiting. Even when it does not feel like it, beloved, our God is working for his glory and for our good. And so, recently, in the past few months, my friend has, uh, they had moved into a new apartment probably early in the summer. And they had brought their dog with them. And this dog, I, I, I'm a dog person. Hate cats, love dogs. Um, this dog's really cool. He's awesome. He's my guy. I go over to their house and see the dog. I like spending time with him, but, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, whenever, if any of you had dogs, whenever you move to a new place, one thing that is common, it may not be diagnosed or said, but a dog has anxiety. They're afraid when the, the owner leaves, this is new, I don't know this place. Man, I've never been here. Are they going to come back? Are they leaving me here? I don't know what to do. Oftentimes they weep. They get into the trash. They, they use the bathroom in the house like they're not supposed to. They do things that are, that are abnormal of them. The dog's anxious. I mean, rightfully so. They don't know where, where their owner is going. They don't know where they are at. They're unfamiliar. So this dog, uh, when I moved into their place, he had some anxiety. Separation anxiety. He didn't, re- he didn't realize that his owner was going, was going to the store to grab dog food. He didn't realize his owner was going to work to buy dog food. He didn't realize that his owner was going to make money to provide for the means for the dog. He doesn't understand that the owner is coming back and will make all things new again. He doesn't understand that the owner <laughs> will never abandon nor forsake him. He's a really good dog owner, really good. Uh, Remy doesn't understand that the owner had to leave. They had to leave to provide for him to come back. This dog, just like the servants in the first parable, is not conducting its life faithfully. It doesn't have its life and trust in that this owner, that the master is coming back. Thank God our master promises he's coming back. We don't have to have this anxiety that, oh, we're going to be stuck here. We're going to be condemned here. We're going to be left here. No. We as believers, we have life in Christ. We, ha- we have been promised we have been guaranteed our salvation through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And that is something we don't have to, don't have to worry about. So you may be thinking, even as I, I begin to close here, how does this connect to the season of Advent? The season that we're walking through right now. And how is it, how is it more than just waiting for Christ to be born and celebrating Christmas and getting the Black Friday deals and getting the new TV or the new car? I, I really want a new car. I, I say that a lot. But church, church family, these two passages we have read this morning, 
in Matthew 24, 36 through 51, we have read that provide us insurance, that provide us comfort, that Jesus is who he says he is, and that Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and worthy of remembering, celebrating, and waiting for his return. That our God has always had a plan to save and redeem his people from death. Our God sent his son to reign over all, to have authority over all, and dominion over all for eternity. And for us to accept Jesus Christ as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And for us to know that he is coming back. And that is something worth waiting for. And so I challenge you this Advent season to start or continue a tradition of waiting on Christ. Incorporate more rhythms and disciplines of our faith into your life. We as a church, even as Brandon and I and some of the elders are talking about, man, how can we incorporate more aspects of our life into our service? You see, we do times of prayer now. We do a call to worship. We do a benediction. We'll sing certain songs. We're trying to incorporate more rhythms and disciplines into our life. We're trying to actively wait together on the coming of Jesus Christ. We posture our service around the waiting, and so y'all should begin to posture your lives around waiting for Christ. As you have family over for the holidays, or you're Christmas shopping and watching the game on TV or opening presents, rejoice and have fun. Yes, we've been given a lot of gifts. We've been given a lot of things. We have homes to open up to. We have our lives to open up to. We have family to go see. There's all beautiful things, friends that we can invite over. But also remember that this season of, Adve- season of Advent is a season of waiting as well. And it needs and should continue not only in this season, but for the rest of our lives. And so, as I close, and even, if, if you hear anything and any of this resonated with you, and, and you, you need prayer, and then how do, I, how do I wait? How do I actively and faithfully wait? I, myself, when the worship team comes and sing the last song, the invitation, I'll be over here to the side. I know we'll have men and women in the back, plenty of members of our church, plenty of brothers and sisters who want to want to help you wait. If you have any questions, you need prayers, come up to me. Maybe this is your first time in, in a church. And you're like, man, I, I, I have a desire to know Jesus. I want to wait for Jesus. I will also be over here to the side to pray for you, to give you help, to wait with you. And so, as I pray and close out, just, just have the sense and posture that as you go out there, that waiting is the correct posture for our lives as Christians. And so, beloved, would you pray for me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word.